If I don't hug you or shake your hand or any of those normal things, I've been battling a cold all week. Uh, mine has not gone full-blown. Marg's has, and she's recovering, and so she's, she's actually here, but she's in the far end of it. But if I don't shake your hand, it's just because I, I like you. Now, if I shake your hand, I always... All right, shook. <laughs> That's right, I forgot, and I already shook... Uh, Christian's hand, so I, I told him to go wash. That's right. I should be going around today. Unclean, unclean. <laughs> all right, you're all free to go wash. <laughs> yeah, I need to get be monk and have my little wife. Let us pray. Father, how we thank you that our whole lives are in your hands. The lives of our family, our parents, our children, the lives of the people in this world. You you are working, O God, in grand ways. We can hardly understand what you're doing in our lives. And we thank you for the wondrous picture and promise in Christ that you have uh, broken, crushed him in our stead. Therefore, as a loving father who we never can lose your care, you would never waste anything in the lives of your children. You would never waste a hurt. You would never waste a problem. And you have let us know in your word that you are working all those things for our good and and yet we are made of this stuff and uh, we so easily get overwhelmed a a sickness can do it a a little bit of a cold, a disappointment uh, a heartache and uh, we rejoice that the father who brought his son to you um, said Lord I believe but help my unbelief and you didn't chastise him but you loved him and healed his son Lord, would you heal us and make us more like Christ? Would you give us this day the joy of our salvation? And uh, would we relish in that? Would we we find ourselves lavished with your love? And uh, only love our Savior Christ more, for we pray in his name. Amen. What is... How do you know when your attempts, when your desires to proclaim Christ, to tell other people about Jesus, how do you know when it's successful? That is a question. Ronnie. Okay, so you would say when we at least see some positive progress, that's when it would be successful. That would be a summary, maybe? 
I'm asking you. Well, no, I'm asking you, when you think about evangelism, of course I'll give you the right answer. <laughs> but uh, no, when you think about evangelism, okay, and because we're talking about gospelizing, taking, sharing, giving, telling the gospel to others, how do we know when we've been successful, right? Christian? you're saying I think if I summarize up what you're saying you're saying that if we're of course I'm not sure about getting treasures for preaching the gospel I'll have to figure that one out you said the evangelist said that not you (laughs) but but and it may be true of some verse but um, you're, you're, you're saying as long as we're being faithful to actually get out there with the gospel then then that's being successful. Okay? Good. Bill? You gonna say the same thing? Mm-hmm. Mark? Salvation helmets on our belt. (laughs) 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 Mike. Thanks, Mike. Um, Mike, come on up here, will you? You can lead the class. You got it right. Yes, we do. Um, we do because we believe in the doctrines of grace. 
that our salvation from beginning to end is ultimately the work of God. But the reason we're talking about successful in this is that God could, if he chose, bring all his people to himself without ever using you and I to proclaim the gospel. But the reason that the way he's chosen to do it is full of, through the foolishness of preaching, you and I taking the word to others. And so if we're to take the word to others and he's chosen to use us as instruments, yes, Mike, in the ultimate sense, you're absolutely right. But I'm talking about you and I as we live in this world and God wants to use us as his instruments. We want to know if we're doing it right. Are we being successful? Are we being obedient? Maybe a better word. But I was putting it in, a, in words that we can understand and we deal with. right? And, and what I want to get so clearly today, my end goal, is to say there are some things that would make us unsuccessful because we're goofy, we're sinful. We'll go at people too hard. We won't hear their story. We think we have to run over them in the name of Jesus and make sure they get it no matter what and, uh, and, and aren't kind and gracious to them or hard if we need, or some people we need to be hard with and we refuse to be. You know, it's a, and so those kind of things, we struggle with that being successful all the time. Did I do it correctly? Did I do it right? And the thankful and the good thing is, is that God uses not only the foolishness of, of the gospel, but he uses the foolishness of people to accomplish his, his purposes. Okay? So as we go out there with the good news, the question is, how do we know if we've done it? How do we know if we've been obedient? How do we know if we've been successful? And so it's that sense. Um, that we're looking at because we, we want to ask those questions you know, because you, you want to at the end of the day say was I obedient you know? was, was I successful in obeying God's word what is, what is my responsibility there and the joy is, is, is getting back actually to Mike's statement is it's God's responsibility of what he does I want to take you to one verse and we're going to go a lot, a lot of verses but go to 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. In the New Testament uh, church... Um, as in any church, there arose people who were preaching the gospel or some form of the gospel. Um, and people tended to go around names and personalities. Um, we, of course, wouldn't do that. You know, we wouldn't go after an R.C. Sproul or Joel Olstein or different people would we right but they did um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 you see that that there if you if you would read the earlier part but we're going to look at verses 6 and 7 where 
Apollos and uh, Paul is is come compared here as they bring the word of God. He says, I planted, Paul speaking, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So it's neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. You see, God uses us as a watering can, as a trowel, as the hands to put the seed of his word, bring it to people's hearts to do the planting. But he is the one that gives growth if growth happens. Okay, Our responsibility is to bring the seed. We can't, um, by any of our pleadings, tears, um, commands, any of those things we want to do. Sometimes God uses our prayers, um, but, but he is the one that does it. And that is why, in some ways, we can tend to be. There's nothing wrong with emotions and, and helping set a mood to some place. Like if, like if you want to have a conversation, there are some, and you take someone to, about the gospel and you take them to a restaurant, there's some restaurants that you can't talk in. Right, And so if you're thinking about it ahead of time, you don't want to take that person, if you can help it, to that restaurant, because they'll never hear you. Right? But even if he went to that restaurant, if God wants to get him, they'll get enough snatches to get it. But it's, not, it's nothing wrong with setting it up in a quieter place so they can hear you. Right? But you don't even have to do that. But you, you, you do things so that people can hear you and, and you can communicate. But it's God who will bring them to himself. And that's... That's what I want to give you a joy as you take the gospel, that if you don't see instant change or you don't see any change, that's not your responsibility, ultimately. That's God's responsibility. Our responsibility is to be faithful, to take the word, to open our mouths, uh, to tell others of Christ and have the joy of our salvation that we want to tell others about how grand and good Jesus is as our Savior, what it is to be forgiven. I won't go over these scriptures. Uh, I will mention them in case some people take notes and stuff, but there's two places in the Bible where the Great Commission that says we're all supposed to go with the Gospel are. The first is Matthew 28, 18-20. Go into all the world. You're familiar with that. The end of Luke... Uh, Jesus, uh, Luke records similar remarks from Jesus in Luke 24. Uh, I think it's verses 46 to 48. Um, but I want to move on and just show you how clearly that the response, your, your responsibility is to take the word, the response, whether people will respond or not, is what God does. Okay, so John's, and there's two places in John, John chapter 6 that are very clear with this. I want you to turn there. Steve and Tim, would you guys pass out some hymnals? We're going to need those later. Some people have them, so you won't need to get a hundred of them, but uh, get some. In John 6 and 44... And if you want to know, what we're looking at is why is it that some people come to Christ when we share the gospel and some people don't? Um, Some of it has to do with timing when God wants to bring them that are His. But 
God is the one that will change their heart with the ones he chooses to change their hearts. John 6.44 No one can come to... They must have all had their hymnals today. Wow. What a job. Thanks, fellas. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so, apparently, the Father doesn't draw everyone. That's why not everyone comes. The Father only draws some people to himself. And then if you go further in John, chapter 6, verse 65. John 6 and 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. And so, the ability to come to Christ is a gift that God gives where he chooses to draw some to himself to be saved. Now, if you haven't figured it out by now, what we're talking about within the Presbyterian circles is a doctrine of predestination or election. Right? That God chooses us before the beginning of time and he chooses to draw some to himself and he chooses not to draw some to himself. Now, our tendency is to say, that's unfair, right? How could a loving God do that? And, and, and the only, well, first of all, there is somewhat of a mystery here, okay? But I can only ultimately tell you what God's Word says, and we have to stop there and trust God. But who deserves to go to hell? Everyone, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone comes forth from the womb being a rebel against God, having the inherited, have the imputed sin of Adam to us, but we do it. I was in a completely secular time, uh, meeting one time, and someone says, Do you believe that children actually sin and, aren't, and, and, and are bad from their mother's womb? You know, and they, they were really trying to entrap me and say, how could you, being a Presbyterian, believe that awful thing? And, and within the audience, there was four or five ladies of childbearing age. And so I thought, they must have children. And so I said to them, I said, well, as you raise your child, what is it that you have to teach them? You have to teach them how to be bad or how to be good. Which is it that they know how to do right away? And all the mothers, all of a sudden, they went, Ah, oh, I got it! You know, they knew instantaneously that their children were sitters. And, uh, and they began to figure it out. So, um, since everyone, because of their sin and rebellion, deserve God's judgment, and He would be perfectly fair, and because He is a holy God, should send everyone to hell... In his mercy, because he as God has chosen to save some, that's his good pleasure. He is being more than fair. Being just would send everyone to hell. Because God in his mercy has chosen to save some, that is a wondrous, gracious thing that he does. And we're going to look at just a few of the scriptures that tell us that everyone who you share that responds to the gospel, they do it not because you're sharing of the gospel, you're telling them the gospel is so great, but it's because God has already appointed them to respond to it. 
We're going to look at a couple of those scriptures. Acts chapter 13, verse 47. Here the apostles are in the midst of preaching. And there, there are literally denominations in the Christian church and even seminaries when they hear about these doctrines that I'm trying to show you are scriptural. They're part of what we believe as biblical Christians. They would tell us that we are literally satanic. Um, they would tell you that we are awful um, for believing these truths. Um, because how could we possibly say that God hasn't given opportunity to all people um, to be saved? That he, ha- that, he, that he will actually choose who, who he saves and who he doesn't. Who he turns back from the road to hell and who he doesn't. So Acts chapter 13 verses 47 and 48. So we, so that's why I'm building a case from Scripture. That's why um, my desire is to do this, and and not just to say this is our doctrine, but we need to see it. Acts 13 verses 47 and 48, as the apostles preach. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when they were, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying. The word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. So who, who believed of the whole crowd they were preaching to? Some did, but which ones? The ones that were particularly appointed by God from the foundations of the world to believe responded to it. Let's continue in the book of Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 29, and and this is where you'll see what Mike was trying to straighten out my original question. Uh, he actually made it better, but uh, but but while God will use us as His instruments, that's why we're talking about gospelizing, taking the joy of our salvation to others. He uses us as instruments, but the very beginning of choosing us is before time began, and He will bring us to the end of our salvation. You know, we, yeah, are we to work? Are we, we're, we're to pray, we're to, we're, to, we're to come to church, we're to do these different things that are part of the Christian life. But they don't earn us anything. They, they, we do it as a response to God's love in us, but we're going to make it to the end because God not only chooses us, but when He chooses us, He never unchooses us. When He adopts us into His family, he, he, even though you're... Are, We've all known people who've adopted, right? Right? And they, sometimes you get this just great kid and you go, Wow! I can't believe it. This is better than I'd ever had my own kid. And sometimes you adopt and it's like, Oh man, why did I ever adopt? You know, because the kid hates you for the rest of his life. That just happens sometimes. We know adoptions that have gone both ways. We've heard of those things, right? But God doesn't ever adopt us. It never says, and that's and this is a scripture that gives you that joy, not only of his choosing you before the foundation of the world, but he'll never let you go. Romans chapter eight, verse twenty nine. For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, brothers. And those whom he, God, predestined, that's before the foundation of time, he also called, remember those in John 6, those verses about none will come unless be drawn to him unless Jesus does it. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorifies. That God is about that, that whole process. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians and see it again. Ephesians verses uh, chapter 1. And of course, you can, only God can do this because as we see, and I've been talking about God choosing us, setting His love on us before we were ever born. I mean, that is, you know, mind-boggling to us because we can look ahead to having children, right? And we can sort of think about what they might be like, and, but we can't even make sure that our children come, right? Uh, I was talking to a pastor friend two weeks ago who's... You know, I, I understand his first child out of the home, they were ready to have, you know, his daughter gets pregnant and, and they lose that, that first child, right, and after a couple months. And uh, I've always tried to be tender towards people in the past, but now my daughter's married and I'm hoping, you know, that we'll get uh, some of those grandchildren if God allows. You know, it, it struck me in a whole new way. Um, about that, you know, we, we 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 look forward to those things. We hope they happen, but we we are not assured of anything. But Almighty God knows exactly what happens before it ever happens, because He is God and plans it according to His purpose. So Ephesians chapter one, verses one to four, and then a verse eleven. Ephesians one to four. Even as He chose us, is that no? Excuse me, Ephesians 1, verse 4. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as He, God, chose Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be blameless before Him. That's Christ. In love, He, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Verse 11. In Him... In Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, if you have your hymnals, I want you to open it now to chapter 3. Chapter 3 in the back of the confession. If you look at the back of your uh, hymnal, you'll see the confession in chapter 3. We're going to look at what effectual calling is. When we, when I preach the gospel, I, I, I tell all people they need to come to Jesus. I tell them that they're sinners and there's only hope in the Savior. But I can't affect the calling. I can't change hearts. God does that. He uses it, he said, through the gospel. When you talk to someone else about the gospel, you give them the call. You tell them, 
that when that they're sinners and if the sinners who who respond to Jesus are saved and so you give a call but there's that's our call with the words but God gives an effectual call by his spirit you and I are sending the word out to everyone that's not effectual unless God makes it that way so whenever God actually uses our words the ones he's chosen to call it always works that's what we're looking at here. We're not going to read all of this. We'll read a part of it. Then I want to take you to a particular scripture that will, that will answer the hard questions with this. But the joy of this is to give you the freedom that it's not your responsibility to change someone's heart. It's your responsibility to be faithful, to lovingly, carefully tell them about the joy of your salvation, who your Savior is, and what He's done for you. What the scripture says. That's your responsibility. God's responsibility is to change who he will. So that you can go away from the, from the encounter, the joy of sharing someone and not say, Oh, did I do it right? What should I have done? They didn't respond. How could I respond positively? How could I say it better? And so the joy is this. It takes that extra burden off of you. You're called to be obedient to take the word of God to tell them about your Savior Jesus, to tell them what the gospel is in the word of God, that they need to be reconciled. They're sinners and need to be reconciled to God. And Jesus is the one who takes the wrath of God for sin upon himself. So if they trust in him, they would be saved. So, but he is the one who calls him and he is the one responsible for it. So let's just, I'm going to read it pretty quickly, just a couple of these paragraphs. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So what we're talking about first of all here is some of the providence that everything is under God's control and we're going to be looking at salvation, those who would respond to the gospel in particular, but he's laying out the cause here that of course God's in charge of this because he's in charge of every single thing that happens. It's just, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? Because when I do this, you know, I, I read somewhere or saw on some show that I'm just literally knocking off gazillions of skin cells. You know? And as I'm doing this, which skin cells get knocked off and where they go and what happens to them is they're in the air now and you're breathing my skin cells. Isn't that great? <laughs> Which, where my skin cells go, and which who breathes them, and what happens to you as a result of breathing, by, you know, that's, that's just part of life, you know. You know, you've sat in a chair, right, in a sunny day, and, you've, and, you've, and the sun's coming in, and you start seeing what's in the air, all those dust particles and everything, right? It's like, oh my! <laughs> right? But, but they're all, God is so wondrous. And it's, we think, why would he even bother? But because he's God. He's in charge of where they're all going and where they're landing for his purposes. He's that wondrous. Nothing is out of his control. The way R.C. Sproul says it that, that got my, my mind, and, and there's, some, there's things that are smaller than a molecule, right? Some of you guys that are scientists, there's like uh, nano, you know, molecule, you know, there's just, but a molecule we know is small, right? I don't, I don't know of any molecules I've generally seen around. I know they're, they're there and they're small, right? But anyhow, the way R.C. Sproul says it is, there's, is if, if, if there is one maverick molecule in the whole universe, 
Right? If there's one molecule out on its own, then God isn't God. Because God being God means that he is not only knows what happens, but he's in charge of it all. So let's look at it and understanding it that way. Paragraph 1. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. He doesn't leave out anything, does it? As you're summarizing scripture. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now, because we're not doing a class on the confession, I can't go into all this, but God uses you and I as part of his will, and, and he uses us as we're a second cause. God could, by a miraculous way, put the gospel in everybody's mind he's going to save, but he doesn't choose to do it that way. He chooses to use us. But let's go on, because we're not a class on that today. Paragraph 2. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet he hath not decreed anything because he foresaw it in the future or as what would come to pass upon some condition. Well, what are we saying there? I'll try to make it in English very quickly. Some people would only say God, because he's omniscient, is able to look in the future and he sees how everything is going to unravel. Right? They would just say, because God knows everything, and he, 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 can, he can see into eternity and know everything that's going to happen. He knows every roll of the dice because he can see in the future, right? But what we say that's biblical is God not only can see in the future the roll of the dice, he plans the numbers on the dice, 7 come 11 or whatever it is, before they ever happen. Okay, So it's not just that he is sort of strong and wise and can see it, what's going to happen. He's purposed ahead of time what will happen. So now we take it into the realm of salvation. Paragraph 3. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life. And others or foreordained to everlasting death. Okay? Now we're getting very personal, aren't we? Because we could just read this as some theological thing, but now our hearts start to deal with this and being human because we have relatives and friends who we would like to be saved and we can't choose them. And and we're even saying here as we look at it that, uh, that God has chosen ahead of time who will and who will not be saved. And we're, we're starting to struggle here. You know, some people can. Um, I have at times. Um, and so we don't go at this. This is serious, isn't it? You know, we're not laughing or being proud, proud here that we're saved and maybe some others aren't. But what we're actually saying is God is God. And, and, and we believe this because he's revealed it. We know his kindness because he's given us the sunshine and the, and, and the, and the beauty of this day to all men, sinners and Christians. Um, and it's up to him to, to choose who he will because he's God. Let's continue. Number D, number four. 
These angels and men, thus predestined and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed that their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be increased or diminished. So God knows beforehand, before the world was ever created, that, that, that Christ would need to come to save sinners and who he would save. Number five, those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other things in the creature as conditions or causes moving thereunto, all to the praise of his glorious grace. What it's saying is, it doesn't have anything to do, you know, the people that, I, that we think God would save are the beautiful and the rich. And what often he changes is people that are just plain old vagabonds and uh, sinners. And he does it for his glory. Now, with all of these, with, with the confession, you don't have the larger confession in the sense that we have scriptural proofs for all these points. And if any one of you like one, we can get you one. We'd love for you to have one. But I will take you to one place in Scripture where this is laid out in one form and it asks and answers the questions that we have. Well, that's not fair. Right? I mean, we, we struggle with this, right? But God has graciously given us a whole chapter in the book of Romans where, where the Gospels build up and summarize it. We want to look at. Let's look at Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, who loves the nation that he came from, the Jewish people, and he, he loves them so much, he says, boy, even if I could lose my... and I, He just talks in an allegory here, or a picture. He says, if I could lose my salvation, I love you so much, I'd be willing to do that. But he will take... The picture that he's going to show us is in history, how in a believing family... Uh, uh, in Old Testament believers, there, were, there was a, a lady who had twins. And it was in a believing family. And one of the twins will be saved and one of the twins will not be saved. And it wasn't because the parents were better at sharing Bible verses with the one child and worse with the other. It wasn't because the one parent loved the other child more or the other parent was more godly and they were closer and they did it. Ultimately had to do because God had chosen to set his love, saving love, on one and not the other. He loved them both. They both had life. They both had sunshine and rain and food. They both had very many gracious things given to them in life, but he chose to love one savingly. Both of these children deserve hell because of their, their sinfulness, their rebellion against God, right? But God chose one and not the other. And so in this, as we look at it, we're going to see the, the, the very things that we tend to struggle with, okay? And, and as, if you've never dealt with this doctrine before, it, it's, it's hard or it's unusual, but I want you to show you from the Word of God, this one place in particular, that, that God even anticipates our questions. So let's look at Romans 9 together. Paul speaks here. 
I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh. It's not, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now he's going to tell the story of the two twins. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He's talking about coming to Israel. For all those that are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now what he's talking about here is he is a Jew. All the Jews had all the Old Testament promises and the word of God. But not all of them were real true Jews of the heart. Not all of them loved God. It's just the same as churches are full of people, but not all of the people in the church love God. Some do. Many do, we hope. But some are visitors. Some are brought up in the family and have not trusted Him. Some have been deceived because they are trying to earn their religion and being good and not trusting Christ. And so there's all kinds of people. And so not everybody in Israel was a true faithful believer. If you read the Old Testament, that's clear. Right? And so he's saying now, in this one family, not everyone believes. What's going on here? So now, let's look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all are descended from Israel to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad... Okay, now verse 10 is where you really need to follow along here. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good and bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? And this is where we start struggling, right? And God's answering our question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he who has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We could go on there, but I think we'll, we'll stop there for right now. But ultimately, what the scripture is telling us is God made the world. God made everything in the world, and God makes every person in the world. And He is the potter, and we are the clay. And we struggle because some. Well, when I was in when I was a kid, everything I did turned out to be an ashtray. But it wasn't pretty, you know. And they still smoked back then, you know. But when I was in kindergarten or first or second grade, I always made my parents ashtrays. That's the best I could do, you know. Little bowl, stick your finger here, here, and here for the cigarette to stick there. And, you know, I couldn't make any pretty pots or anything. It was all crummy work. But some people make beautiful things, right? You've seen potters work, and and they decorate their stuff, and and it's painted, and all the rest. But the potter has the privilege of making whatever he will with his pots. And uh, God has, being God, has the perfect right to save those from judgment that all should go. We all deserve hell. But he's chosen to save some out and place his love, his saving love upon. Um, I would imagine for most of you that this is familiar, right? But not everybody's worked through it, right? We all we are different places with this. This is not easy for us, and I don't. And, I, and I'm not up here saying, if you don't get it, boy, you're gonna. Just, it, it it rubs against our natural our, our natural ways, and, and so God's even answering us here. But ultimately, it's when we give up and we say. Lord, you know better than I do. And the only reason I know you know better than I do is because I know that I deserve hell. And you've opened my heart to understand Jesus. You love me. I trust what you're doing. I don't understand it. Um, But ultimately, this is to bring us to the place in the joy of our salvation. That the way God has chosen to bring others is by us taking the gospel. And the purpose in going over this today is saying, you are being successful in your evangelism when you open your mouth and you tell others about the beauty of Christ. When you share with them the joy of your salvation. Their response is God's business. Your responsibility is to be opening your mouth and loving them. Tell them about where salvation can be found for sinners.
God will draw those whom he will to himself. So that takes an ordinate amount of pressure off of you. If not, every week that I preach, and I know that there are non-Christians here, people struggling, I would go home as a pastor and I'd pull my hair out and never be able to sleep because I'd say, well, what if I'd said this? Or what if I brought up this point? Or what if I did this? Right? But I can go home and go to bed and say, Lord, with your help, I was as faithful as I could be. And you will draw who you will unto yourself. And that's the same joy you need to have when you share the gospel with others. That you are his instrument. He uses you. But the results are his. Um, I'm going to just point you to three different scriptures. And let's, we'll actually read them together. I think we have enough time for them. But they're all scriptures that talk about the being faithful when you take the word of God. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 first. Verses 18 to 21. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And as you take the word, you know this is true. You, you've seen this happen with different people. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 21. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since it is the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And it's not just the folly of what we preach. They don't understand. All of religion, and you'll hear this in the sermon, is of two types. One of human achievement, and the other is divine accomplishment. Right? And the world can't handle that what you do to come to Christ is nothing. What can you do to save yourself? Nothing. You trust in what God has provided, Jesus. And even that faith you have in Him, you don't have unless He gives it to you. So that God gets the glory. But all other religion of this world is human achievement. I have done something to make me good, acceptable to God. And to the human mind, to a sinful mind, that is absolute foolishness until God changes us around. And that's why it talks about preaching the fool. The the folly of the cross. The next set of verses in Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 11. Isaiah 55, excuse me. Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 11. God's word always is successful. For some, it will soften their hearts, and some, it will harden their hearts. But it always is successful. When you take the gospel to someone else and you share it with them it's always successful God is either softening them he's, he's used what you have told them because he's calling them to be another softening agent that, that, that you might be watering and someone else is planting and later on the growth will come or maybe right then or he's using your words just to harden them all the more that they may never come we don't know but it's God's job and it's always successful Isaiah 55 6-11 through 11. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake the way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he might have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but there return there, but water the earth, making it forth bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I believe that there are some people that want to use that scripture and say, whenever you take God's word, it's going to have effect and you're going to draw people to Christ. Well, I think they've got to say, well, wait a minute, I, I told someone the gospel, they didn't respond, what happened? Right? It wasn't successful. No, God will use his word to bring some and to harden some. One last scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance of death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? What it's telling us here, if you have had the privilege of taking the word of God to someone and they have responded and trusted Christ, if you've ever done that, it's such a wondrous thing to see the burden of their sins literally roll off their back and them finding Christ to be their Savior, that they don't have to be good enough to save themselves, that they have been loved and cared for by Christ himself. That is a wondrous thing. And you become their friend and they love you because you've been like a doctor that has saved them from cancer. Except eternally. Right? People rejoice when you take that. You smell good to them. But when you go to others and you tell them that their good works can't save them and they're under God's wrath because of it, if their hearts aren't changed, You don't smell very good to them. You're not a good fragrance to them. And they go away thinking, who did he think he was? How dare you tell me that I'm not good? Right? And so you can be either one of these. And we are not sufficient for these things in ourselves, right? I've given up because I haven't been sufficient at times, right? I've been not taking the word because I don't want to stink in some people's eyes. Right? Who wants to be a stinker? Right? But if we have the joy of our salvation, if we love Christ, it's the foolishness, this message, that Christ died for sinners, is, and they don't have hope in themselves, but 
in human achievement that God has provided in Christ. That's what changes them. It's his responsibility. So go. You're always successful when you go. You're always successful when you go and open your mouth and tell of Christ. It accomplishes God's preordained purposes for his glory. Our Father, as uh, we have not spoken much, we have spoken of you much. We've looked at your word and uh, bowed before you. We find it amazing that you would use us at all, that you would love us at all. We, we know that from our mother's wombs we were rebels against you. That you've not only set your love upon us, but you're making us like Christ and you're having us come to be Christ to the world. Christ ones, Christians. Father, protect us from our own pride and vanity that we want to add any of this to ourselves. May we take this amazing message to men and women, boys and girls in every place and class and tell them how wretched we are and how good God is and how His mercies are forever. Through Jesus our Savior. Amen.